Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 15th of July with me, Ian Welsh. The impact of economic development on Indigenous communities, and in particular their human rights, has never been more important. A couple of weeks ago I spoke with Sam Zoki-Burke, Senior Legal Researcher at the Columbia Centre on Sustainable Investment in New York, and Ikal Angelehi, Co-Founder and Director of Friends of Lake Turkana in Kenya. We talked about the impact of the renewable energy sector on the human rights of local people during the deployment phase of wind and solar projects. That's coming up. First, though, is some sustainable business news. New research commissioned by the Plastic Soup Foundation has found microplastics in beef and pork for the first time. Scientists at Dutch University VUA found plastic particles in 75% of the products that they tested and in every animal blood sample. The scientists also tested animal feed pellets and found microplastics in every pellet tested, indicating they concluded that feed could be a possible contaminant route. Earlier this year, VUA researchers had found microplastics in human blood for the first time. The potential harm that microplastics can cause humans and animals is not yet clear, but the fact that particles are being found in blood samples means that they do have a route to travel around the body, potentially lodging in organs. Plastic pollution, of course, first came to prominence in relation to materials in the world's oceans. And the UN's Oceans Conference, recently comprised of five days of discussions in Lisbon, Portugal, primarily focused on how to deliver on UN Sustainable Development Goal Number 14, which relates to protecting life underwater. SDG 14 has been split into some specific targets, including on sustainable fishing, reducing pollution and tackling ocean acidification. More than 6,000 participants from 150 countries took part in the Lisbon event and adopted what's called the Lisbon Declaration, which includes a series of science-based action points, some of which are specifically geared to helping island nations that are most highly impacted by ocean health. In total, conference participants made 700 commitments to protect national waters and develop marine protected areas. Campaigning group Mighty Earth is keeping up the pressure on the soy sector with a new investigation that links soy-based animal feed used by suppliers to UK supermarkets with deforestation and biome destruction in Brazil. Mighty Earth says that 27,000 hectares of the Cerrado grassland biome have been converted to soy farms since mid-2020, and this is in spite of an industry pledge from supermarkets not to buy meat linked to any ecosystem destruction perpetrated since August 2020. Swedish car maker Volvo seems set to leave the European Automobile Manufacturers Association by the end of 2022 because of disagreement over the pace of ceasing the manufacture of vehicles with internal combustion engines. Volvo has committed to a 100% electric range by 2030 compared to the European Union's proposed deadline of 2035. And the association's view is that even 2035 is premature, prompting Volvo to state that it concludes its corporate policy is not aligned with the association and that it plans to leave. Volvo says that the car industry has a major role to play in deciding whether or not the planet has a chance to curb climate change. The Innovation Forum Autumn Conference Series includes the next in our events on the future of plastics and packaging on the 11th and 12th of October in Amsterdam, with a focus this year on how business can build circular packaging solutions that deliver impact at scale. And our flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum returns on the 1st and 2nd of November, also in Amsterdam. As ever, the agenda will have an emphasis on open, candid debate and discussion. Now is a good time to register for this conference, as you can save €300 Euros on passes before the end of July. Recently, I spoke with Sam Zoki-Burke, Senior Legal Researcher at the Columbia Centre on Sustainable Investment in New York, and Ikal Ahilehi, Co-Founder and Director of Friends of Lake Turkana in Kenya. 
I wanted to find out more about their work into the human rights impacts of renewable energy projects and the importance of these in enabling a just transition. Sam, let me turn to you first. Why don't you briefly outline the work of the Columbia Centre on Sustainable Investment and also tell us about your new resources that you've just published on respecting human rights at project affected communities in the wind and solar energy sector. The Columbia Centre on Sustainable Investment is an applied research centre. We're based at Columbia Law School and the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And we strive for a world in which international investment contributes to and does not undermine sustainable development and human rights. I co-lead the centre's work on the governance of land-based investment, and that includes wind and solar energy projects. And for the last couple of years, we have been trying to get a better sense of the human rights impacts that are caused by wind and solar energy projects, and also to create a kind of pathways and guidance for companies to improve their human rights performance, specifically around local communities, and to try to help them avoid the mistakes that other sectors have made in decades previously. Okay, then let's talk a little bit about some of the impacts that these developments have then. So what are the background numbers from development of wind and solar projects? So renewable energy generation has more than doubled in the last 10 years and wind and solar have really led this growth. They make up over half of renewable energy capacity globally. And from the most recent data we have in 2020, they accounted for most of the growth in renewable energy capacity. That new capacity is overrepresented in Asia. Almost two thirds of the kind of new renewable energy capacity comes from Asia. And that's largely due to acceleration of projects in China. In some respects, the ramp up in renewable energy is extremely positive. We know that we need these technologies to replace fossil fuels if we have any hope of keeping global heating within one and a half degrees Celsius of pre-industrial levels. But this need to reduce emissions has distracted from the importance of respecting the human rights of Indigenous peoples and local communities who often have to live with serious ongoing negative impacts from these projects. This is obviously bad for those people, but our research also shows that it's also bad for companies who face increased operational and financial and reputational risks. And it's therefore bad for the planet as well because it risks delegitimizing the sector and limiting its ability to expand energy production responsibly around the world. What our centre has concluded is that what we need is a new paradigm of human rights performance. Renewable energy companies need to avoid the mistakes of sectors like mining, oil and gas, etc. But they also need to go further to make sure that projects respect rights and deliver sustainable development to communities. So what are the significant impacts that you're seeing then and where are these happening? We group the prominent human rights impacts of wind and solar projects into five categories. The first is around community participation and control of customary lands. Indigenous peoples and local communities have human rights to control what happens on their lands and also to be part of decision making. Yet the renewable energy sector risks making those similar mistakes to mining and other sectors. The biggest mistake is thinking that communities are outside of the decision making process and just pushing on with projects without doing the work to understand the local context and the priorities of local people. The second grouping of impacts is around displacement. So communities are often pushed off their land, and this can be physically if they're asked or told or forced to move, but also there's economic displacement when community sources of livelihoods are interrupted by large-scale projects. 
And this displacement affects human rights to housing, to food, to water, to development, and to many other human rights. The third category is cultural and social impacts. Land for Indigenous peoples and customary communities is so much more than just a resource for an activity to take place. It's a source of identity. It can be a source of culture and religion. And renewable energy projects risk interfering with this through the destruction of sacred sites and burial grounds and the use of areas of cultural significance. There are also social impacts as projects ramp up and bring workers from outside the community, which can lead to increased prevalence of alcoholism, sex work, and other changes to the social fabric. Fourth are threats, intimidation, and violence directed towards human rights defenders. Defenders include activists, lawyers, journalists, and community members themselves who speak out and seek to have more just arrangements around a project. Unfortunately, we do see a surprising uptick of threats, intimidation and violence around the world, including in the wind and solar sectors. This doesn't only come from companies themselves, but also often from security personnel who are contracted by the company. And it can also be in more subtle or kind of less direct ways when companies bring retaliatory lawsuits that can keep activists tied up in legal proceedings for years or even decades. And then the final grouping of potential rights impacts for communities is around labour rights. And here we're thinking of scenarios where community members themselves actually work at renewable energy projects and then face potential labour rights violations. So then companies developing these projects, how do they look out and how can they avoid these risks? What are the key things they need to be doing? I think the first thing that companies need to understand is simply how serious these risks are. Obviously, they're serious in terms of the impacts on human rights of communities and companies are made up of individuals who really want to be part of positive change and not be tied to these sorts of impacts. But those rights violations and other negative impacts often lead to community opposition and that can then lead to a large number of business risks that will also resonate with people who are further away from the action within the company. This includes project delays, permit revocations, even failed projects, reputational damage and financial losses. So some recent research on land-based investments found that the outcomes of these sorts of adverse events for companies can cost companies millions of dollars or up to between 24 and 37% of the net present value of project investments. And then other research has found that companies that do the right thing, that really front load their relationship management with communities and put communities in the driver's seat, those companies are only spending about 2% of project costs or around 10% of the net present value to make sure that they have really good working relationships and understand where the community is coming from. So then in terms of very specific recommendations from our business guides for wind and solar companies on human rights, We group these into four categories of recommendations. The first is governance. So companies need to establish a human rights governance framework that energizes all elements of the company from the executive level in HQ far, far away, all the way through to those implementing the project on the ground. Second, companies need to have clear and really good policy commitments on human rights, on community engagement, and on human rights defenders. These policy commitments can help formalise the rules of the game internally within the company and change incentives within the company for different actors. 
Third is human rights due diligence and remedy. And I know that's a regular topic of this podcast. Companies need to have systems to turn their policies that I just mentioned into practice. And human rights due diligence is really key here. So this means taking action to understand and respond to the risk of human rights impacts before they occur. Likewise, remedy frameworks should be set up and and remedy processes should be set up to address violations that do occur and to enable the company to actually learn from its mistakes and change processes to avoid that happening in the future. The fourth grouping is partnerships. And for companies, this can occur in a lot of different directions, but in particular, Companies should be using their leverage to improve the human rights practices of their business partners, so of anyone with whom they're contracting, and not only assuming that they need to make sure that their own employees are acting responsibly with regard to human rights. And then partnerships for companies also applies to their relationship with local communities. So companies should be looking at equity models. They should be really trying to work side by side with communities rather than trying to press on with a preconceived model and hoping the communities don't get step in the way of, of their plans. We hear quite a lot about the changing role of investors and financiers who are now looking at risks differently. What do you think is the role of the investment and finance communities in ensuring that these human rights are recognised and these risks are mitigated? Investors have a crucial role to play, given the immense amount of funds that they are directing into renewable energy projects right now. Specifically, they need to move beyond thinking that any renewable energy projects can be considered to satisfy growing expectations around green and responsible investment and ESG. The leading global standards on human rights, the United Nations Guiding Principle on Business and Human Rights, state that there are no offsets when it comes to human rights behaviour. And that means that a project that benefits the environment doesn't offset the human rights responsibilities associated with that project. What we would say is that investors need to be using their leverage over the companies that they're investing in and applying their safeguards to make sure that these renewable energy projects are truly part of a just and rights-respecting transition and not just a green project that's violating human rights at the same time. Ikal, let me turn to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Why don't you introduce yourself and the work of the Friends of Lake Turkana? My name is Ika Langile. I'm the co-founder of Friends of Electricana and the director supporting the organization. Friends of Electricana is a grassroots women-led indigenous organization that works to amplify the voices of indigenous communities, to demand for their cultural, economic, environmental rights within the Turkana Basin. And so what we do is really pushing for and providing for women-led leadership. We increase citizens' participation in policy and budgetary processes. We push for land and environmental rights and really protecting Lake Turkana because that is the centre of where our work really began. Lake Turkana is in northern Kenya, is that right? Yes, Lake Turkana is in northern Kenya. It's the largest desert lake in the world. How have wind and solar developments impacted Indigenous communities where you are? We've had the largest lake, the largest wind farm in Africa is the Lake Turkana wind power. So that is within within the Lake Turkana basin. And you know, while we celebrated big project that like this, but was also a renewable energy, so it meant that it was really contributing to SDG seven. We didn't realize that the process of acquiring the land was going to be faulty. The acquisition of land by the Lake Turkana wind power totally violated the rights of indigenous communities. Ignored the fact that. 
while the land is rangelands and pastoralists move from place to place at the time when the company was acquiring the land, they assumed that the land was idle. So that was the first one. And second one is just that, so, and that means you're displacing communities from their grazing areas. You're creating conflicts amongst communities because then you pit one ethnic community to the other, just creating vulnerability amongst communities, which in many ways impacted the way communities related, the social relations, but also really the loss of their territorial land. Which is obviously very serious. I mean, you, you say that it was an assumption that the land was not being used. So it was just a, a lack of engagement with the community then. So there was absolutely no lack of, there was no engagement with the communities. And the second one, using the state, because then in places like this, this is a region that's marginalized with high levels of poverty access. It really started in 2010, 2011. So access to areas like this, this was before devolution. So roads to the region, information to the region, just really there was lack of connectivity. And so using state apparatus to intimidate communities so that they think that it's a community meeting, and so many of the community members would sign an attendance register thinking it was just an attendance, and that was what was used to claim that the communities have given consent. So that was the first thing. And then secondly, just the fact that they say it's a state project. When you use state apparatus to intimidate communities, then there's that fear that if we do not agree with it, then the state will still take the land. And then lastly, when the land was acquired, the compensation mechanism for the land has been very little. So when you're looking at such huge, about 40,000 hectares of land, and the compensation is 300,000 shillings, so it's equal to 3,000, less than 3,000 pounds, or $3,000. Yeah, about $3,000 being used as compensation for people's livelihoods, social relations, and sense of identity and belonging. It appears then, from what you say, that the principles of FPEC, of free, prior, informed consent, have not been observed. What would you have liked to have seen done in this case? So the first thing is to recognise that these are Indigenous communities and they have a right to be informed, showing that free, prior, informed consent of these communities. And, and it was unfortunate because when this project was initiated, was approved, the organisation that was approving it, the financiers, which was the overseas, the OPIC, indicated that these are not Indigenous communities. So that one first was wrong assumption. And then secondly, allowing the people the dignity that this is their sense, you know, this is where they call home. So giving them that sense of identity and belonging, and that really lacked. As Sam said, the aspect of equity, these communities are not just giving out their land, they're owners of this region. So how do they be real owners of that development that is being brought by, claimed by the state that it is their development? What are the sort of benefits that you would like to see for the community then? Because as you said at the start, clearly this should be a positive thing if you have a large wind farm locally and there should be benefits flowing from that. So what would you like to see? I think the first is for communities to be part of the discussion around where it is going to be located, because they understand they have the traditional knowledge to know where is the migration route, how it is done. For them to get an understanding of what is the impact of the wind, because we are pastoralists, so when the turbines are going round and the animals, the noise itself scares away animals, and so it, so that then communities can then decide which are the areas that we rarely use and how do we then change migration or migratory routes. So that's the first one. The second one is that the free prime from consent that they're engaged through it that they understand how long it will take. And thirdly, because this is their land, you know, what are the possible models of equity, as Sam mentioned, models that allow some sense of ownership, you know, is land as natural capital or what is it? Because as it is, it is generated in Loyangalani. It goes to the city and then goes back to the community. So again, communities are always on a waiting list 
to determine what happens. Do they get energy or not? But really perhaps even some subsidy to how that energy is generated, but also is access to them. Is it cheaper? Because it's one thing for them to generate the energy within this region. Can the community there afford that sort of energy? So those are some of the things that we would like to see happen in terms of development. It's also recognizing that while governments are talking about private-public partnerships, perhaps a new model that allows communities to be part of that whole engagement, so community-public-private partnerships, perhaps is something that we can start to look at. So just to clarify then, at what stage is this project? You mentioned the, you know, the Lake Turkana wind farm. What stage is it? Is it operational now? It's completed. I think what is now waiting is for the transmission line. I think for us, the fact that there was a process of acquiring the land that was flawed the acquisition of land was flawed, and right now it has there's a court case in place. But on top of that, there was more land that was acquired without the community. So you can see the sense of speculation from this investment company. So at the moment, the project is actually complete. It is now trying to put it into transmission to the main grid. Perhaps then a question to both of you. What's the role of regulation here? Ikal mentioned that state apparatus had been used to override some of the fundamental principles of FBIC. Sam, from your perspective, what sort of regulation do you want to see changing that would certainly improve matters here? Regulation is absolutely crucial. Our guides and our messaging to the private sector about its responsibility to respect human rights, that's really additive to the overarching obligation of governments to protect the human rights of Indigenous peoples and local communities. The good news is that regulators are catching up in some jurisdictions. There are a host of human rights and environmental due diligence laws emanating from Europe and North America, and those are going to apply to large projects happening anywhere around the world. Countries hosting renewable energy projects also can improve their laws to address these concerns by requiring the inclusion of communities in every step of the investment assessment and approval process and not assuming that the only way to generate renewable energy is to alienate and impoverish Indigenous peoples and local communities. In Kenya's case, first of all, there is a positive new land law on the books and it now just has to move towards actual implementation. But the country can also learn from regional cases brought by Indigenous peoples that have repeatedly underlined the government's obligation to respect the community's right to give or withhold its free prior and informed consent. The final thing is that even though we are engaging with companies directly, their mindset shouldn't be to ask if relevant regulations and laws already apply. They should be getting ahead of this legal risk now, using our guidance, using the insights from ECAL and other Indigenous leaders around the world when the laws catch up to what good practice is, those companies will already be used to those standards and will already be implementing them, which will allow for fewer shocks to company processes. Thanks, Sam. Ikal, do you want to comment on that new land law that Sam mentioned? What are you hoping that it will achieve? Yes, the Community Land Act really is to secure, recognise, secure and protect uh, communities' rights to land. And I think you know, in this way, really ensure that the government can seek consent from communities to acquire land. The other flip side is government stays the public good and takes land, dispossesses communities compulsory, and that then becomes the problem. So it's how then we interpret this compulsory acquisition versus the aspect of recognition and securing of the land. But having said that, you know, there's also the aspects of different regulations around energy generation and distribution. The fact that we have all these various policies within the energy laws that look at feed-in tariffs, yet 
we continue to see generation of energy in one place and actually those same spaces don't have the same and you know that energy you know there's a role of the state and i think it is also appreciating the dance between corporate and state that usually leaves communities and mostly indigenous communities vulnerable to that capture by corporations what other steps forward do you want to see so the regulations within our countries, but then because we've seen that, especially within the global south, a lot of the laws may, may be weak. So how then do we use international processes that can allow us to hold international companies accountable in their own countries, as we've seen with the Shell case in Nigeria? I think that's one of the things. I think it's secondly, the work that Sam and CCSI are doing, you know, really reaching out to the corporates so that they understand that the communities are not anti-development, that we actually want to, to see this development, but we cannot see development that is without us, for us, because it's got to be really, own, you know, a sense of ownership by the communities. I think for me, those would be the two key things that I'd like to see going forward. Sam, do you have a final comment? What else do you want to see going forward? I agree with Ikal. Companies need to listen and learn from communities if they are to be part of a truly just transition for investors, they really need to scrutinise their investments and exert pressure on their client companies to create clear expectations that green investment is going to be useless without strong human rights practices and performance. And then finally, for governments around the world, governments need to look beyond the initial positive announcement of a new renewable energy project and to actually enforce laws and make sure that renewable energy projects in their jurisdictions are working for both people and planet including those whose human rights are most at risk. Well, look, thank you. It's been a fascinating conversation. I've learned a lot in the last few minutes. It's been really interesting hearing about not only the work of the Columbia Centre for Sustainable Investment, but particularly hearing from Ikal and the Friends of Lake Turkana and on the ground talking about the challenges and human rights violations from developments there. But for now, thanks very much indeed to Ikal Angelehi and Sam Zuki-Burke. And goodbye. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. Over the coming weeks, look out for a series of audio highlights from the Innovation Forum Spring Event Series. And don't forget that if you want to join either the Plastics and Packaging or the Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conferences in Amsterdam this autumn, you can take advantage of discounts and passes if you reserve your place now. But that's it for this week. The podcast is having a break next week and we'll be back a bit later in the month. For now though, I've been Ian Welsh and until next time, goodbye.